First World War was one of the most catastrophic and impactful moments in British history. It saw the advent of new ways of waging war, a new, more mechanized, more industrial kind of war that began to encompass every aspect of British society. Every class, every position, every man, woman and child, no one and nothing was left untouched by the Great War. In the history of Britain, there are few events that can match the true impact the First World War had. For many, their understanding of the Great War begins with the Western Front, with fields pockmarked with vast craters laced with mud-filled trenches, with barbed wire, gas, and no man's land. But Britain was in turmoil even before the declaration of war was written. To understand this, we have to look back to 1912. At this time, Ireland was heavily divided between the nationalists and the unionists. The Irish nationalists wanted Ireland to become either a fully independent nation or with home rule and a parliament in Dublin. The unionists, who were based in Ulster, on the other hand, wanted to remain in the United Kingdom. For years, the nationalists had been trying to get a home rule bill passed in parliament. Starting in 1886, the first attempt was rejected. A second bill came in 1893, but was again rejected. And it was in 1912 that a third, and hopefully final, Home Rule Bill was brought to the British government. This time, it was introduced by the Prime Minister himself, Herbert Asquith and his Liberal government. It was easily passed in the House of Commons, but met stiff opposition in the House of Lords, where it was delayed for two years. The passing of the bill by the Commons was hailed as a victory back in Ireland, and the leader of the Nationalists, John Redmond, was heralded as a hero. Of course, it also had the opposite effect on the Unionists, who saw this as a threat to Ireland's stability, and as a great conspiracy against the position of their nation. Led by Sir Edward Carson, these Unionists assembled in Belfast and signed the Ulster's Solemn League and Covenant, pledging themselves to the defence of Ireland and the defeat of this threat of home rule. 500,000 people met at Belfast City Hall and signed this agreement. While this paper was deeply symbolic, the Unionists looked for a more powerful way to demonstrate their intent, forming the Ulster Volunteer Force in December 1912. In response, the Nationalists formed the Irish Volunteers. Tensions in Ireland were brewing, and now both sides had a kind of army at their disposal. Back home, conditions weren't much easier for Asquith and his government. At the same time as Ireland was dividing itself in two, Britain's workforce was beginning to do the same. Becoming known as the Great Unrest, the years between 1911 and 1914 saw around 3,000 major revolts and strikes take place. During the years 1873 to 1896, Britain had experienced a kind of depression, and while it was followed by a small economic boom, 
workers' wages stayed the same as prices for goods rose, meaning that they quickly began to see their standard of living cut. Alongside this, Britain began to reorganise their industry, looking for greater mechanisation. This was not well received by the workers, whose jobs were at risk. All of this, working conditions, wages, trade union recognition, and the seeming inability for the unions to get anything passed in Parliament, sparked the riots, and threw Britain into turmoil. By this time too, the unions and the workers' associations had become very well organised, very vocal, and if need be, very violent. And so, the government would be inclined to fight fire with fire. One of the most famous confrontations of the unrest took place in South Wales, where the entire town of Llanelli was put under siege by the military and led to the death of two striking railway workers. This chaos, the loss of workers and workdays, and the effectiveness of the unions to amass large riots and strikes was a threat to the very establishment of Britain. The stability of the country was at stake, and the position of the government and the traditionally established hierarchies of the nation at risk. And it doesn't stop there. While all of this was going on, there was rising a growing voice for women's rights and the vote. Set up in 1903, the Women's Social and Political Union became one of the foremost organisations fighting for this cause. At its head was Emmeline Pankhurst. She realised the power a force of enfranchised women could have. As she said in one of her speeches, women are very slow to rouse. But once they are aroused, once they are determined, nothing on earth and nothing in heaven will make women give way. It is impossible. She became the driving force behind the movement, encouraging militant tactics, seeing it as one of the only ways to gain attention and bring about change. She said in a speech in 1913, We were called militant and we were quite willing to accept the name. We were determined to press this question of enfranchisement of women to the point where we were no longer to be ignored by the politicians. This group insisted on deeds, not words, and followed this belief to the extreme. From heckling politicians, the suffragettes escalated to illegal assembly, assaulting police, smashing windows, boycotting the census, pouring acid into post boxes, arson, and even planting explosives. One of the most potentially deadly moments of suffragette protest happened in Dublin in 1912. During a fully packed lunchtime matinee show, four Irish suffragettes, Mary Lee, Gladys Evans, Lizzie Baker, and Mabel Capper, tried to set alight the Theatre Royal. Not only was this showing attended by hundreds of innocent bystanders, but also by the Prime Minister himself, Herbert Asquith. The women left a canister of gunpowder behind the stage and threw petrol and lit matches into the projection booth filled with highly flammable film reels. 
This wasn't even Mary Lee's first attempt on Asquith's life that day. She had thrown a hatchet at his head that missed him and instead cut the ear of Irish MP John Redmond. These radical actions came to a fatal crescendo in 1913. During the Epsom Derby, Emily Wilder Davison stepped out in front of the King's horse in the ultimate act of protest. She would die four days later from her injuries. As the suffragettes were beginning to ramp up their activities, and as 1914 dawned, in Ireland, tensions were getting increasingly taut. For years, British soldiers had been stationed in Ulster, with Carrar in County Kildare being Britain's premier military base in Ireland. Rather unsurprisingly, many of the officer class sympathised with the Unionist ideals, wishing to stay within the United Kingdom and protect their positions and status. As tensions rose, there was a growing concern that the Ulster Unionists may try to invade Southern Ireland and General Sir Arthur Paget, Commander-in-Chief in Ireland, was ordered to make preparations to prevent this eventuality. On the 20th of March, without any written orders from London, Paget told his officers that movement against Ulster was imminent. He gave any officers who had homes or families in Ulster the opportunity to temporarily disappear in the event of any action. Not only this, but he said that any officers who were not willing to obey the orders to move against Ulster were to say so and would be permitted to resign and be dismissed from the service. Of the 70 officers consulted, 57 accepted the dismissal and refused to quash the Ulster Unionists. This became known as the Carrar Mutiny, although Technically, none of the officers who resigned were guilty of mutiny. They hadn't disobeyed any orders. Nevertheless, this caused a stir in London, with the government rushing to rescind any orders about repressing Ulster Unionists. Asquith claimed nothing of the sort had even been contemplated, and the entire event was just an honest misunderstanding. The War Office went so far as to say that government ministers had no intention to ever use military force to ensure submission to the Home Rule Bill. This statement seems to have been made without cabinet authority, with those who issued it obliged to resign. This had effects on both sides of the tension, with the Unionists having their confidence bolstered, with the government's supposed plan to crush them foiled because the military seemingly supported the Unionist cause. For the Nationalists, this event merely confirmed their increasing suspicions that Asquith wasn't committed to the Home Rule Bill, and whether he had ever been truly willing to deal with Unionist militancy and the issue of Irish Home Rule. Four months later, things only got worse. On the 27th of July, 1914, the Irish volunteers were conducting a gun-running operation in Howth, Dublin, picking up 1,500 rifles and ammunition. Turning the corner into Howth Road, the hundreds of volunteers involved found themselves hemmed in by two cordons of police and soldiers 
from the king's own Scottish borderers. A standoff ensued, with William Harrell, the assistant commissioner of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, ordering his men to attempt to disarm the volunteers. In the scuffle, shots were fired. Police used their batons. Soldiers used their bayonets. A number of officers refused to get involved and were subsequently removed from duty for disobeying orders. Fewer than 20 guns were eventually captured, with the volunteers managing to save the rest. After this rather botched recovery, the soldiers began to march back into Dublin city. Following them, however, was a large, increasingly hostile crowd. They hurled abuse, bricks and stones at the soldiers until, on Bachelor's Walk on the bank of the Liffey River, the soldiers turned and retaliated. They charged the crowd with bayonets and volleys of gunfire. Major Alfred Haig, commander of the troops, repeatedly claimed he never ordered the gunfire and the official report concluded that promiscuous firing by 21 soldiers took place without orders. Whether ordered or not, it didn't matter. Once the shooting stopped and the smoke rose, three civilians lay dead, and more than 30 had to be rushed to hospital. Patrick Pierce, one of the leaders of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and figureheads of the nationalist movement, saw an opportunity and seized it. He turned the event into a rallying cry for the nationalist cause. Coupled with the hugely successful Howth gun running, the moment became iconic, with British violence, ineptitude and double standards being brought to the fore. Pierce declared, The army is an object of odium, and the volunteers are the heroes of the hour. The whole movement, the whole country has been rebaptized by bloodshed for Ireland. Now, the movement had some blood to catalyse them. Back in England, the suffragettes continued their campaign of unrest, with over a thousand women being imprisoned. But prison didn't stop the protests. Many suffragettes staged hunger strikes, beginning with Marion Wallace Dunlop, a militant sentenced to a month in Holloway Prison for vandalism in 1909. After 92 hours of refusing food, then-Home Secretary Herbert Gladstone, desperate to avoid Dunlop becoming a martyr, released her on medical grounds. This became a common tactic, with suffragettes refusing food, being released, and able to return to the fighting line. As suffragette demonstrations began to get more aggressive, the government became more reluctant to release those women already imprisoned, even if they went on a hunger strike. Prisons began, therefore, to force-feed the strikers through a tube, usually inserted through the nostril or as a stomach tube or stomach pump. Despite the practice being regarded as safe by the medical practitioners, the feeding was usually done with the women strapped down and with a considerable amount of force. While naturally being painful, this process also caused long-term damage to the circulatory system, digestive system, and nervous system, with some women even developing pleurisy or pneumonia as a result of a misplaced tube. 
This didn't stop them, however, with suffragettes continuing their radical protests and with arrests continuing to be made. Then, on the 4th of August, 1914, it was as if time stopped. Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria had been assassinated on June the 28th. Germany had invaded Belgium. Britain told Germany that if they did not back down and cease their aggression, Britain would have no choice but to act. Britain had been in a treaty with Belgium since 1839, promising to come to their aid on the event of outside aggression. The ultimatum had been laid. The deadline was 11pm. When the bells across the country chimed those 11 resounding notes, no reply had been received from the German Kaiser. Therefore, just before midnight on the 4th of August 1914, King George V agreed to those bitter and infamous words, Britain declares war on Germany. For the British people, this was met with a mixture of emotions. For many, they were excited, intrigued, believing that they should stand up for their weaker counterpart in Belgium and fight back the onslaught of the German army. Large crowds gathered outside Buckingham Palace, cheering and waving Union Jacks in their support for the war effort. For others, the announcement was met with worry, trepidation, and just a hint of fear. Some within Asquith's cabinet resigned, unable to stomach that this ultimatum had even been made. Nevertheless, however the people felt, Britain was at war, and catastrophe was peering over the horizon. This also had an immediate effect on the issues that had been tearing Britain apart. For the workers, it was something new to pour their energy into. Hundreds of thousands rushed voluntarily to the recruiting offices, enthused with the idea of war. Britain did not have any kind of conscription at the time, so the two million or so men who volunteered are testament to just how well the war was received on what was now the Home Front. For the Irish, the Home Rule Bill was due to be made law in 1914, but it now took a back seat to the hostilities opening up in Europe. The government did pass the Government of Ireland Act, but was suspended until the conflict ended. This act, rather unsurprisingly, was hotly protested by the Ulster Unionists, but with the outbreak of a larger conflict, the tension between the Unionists and Nationalists was momentarily tempered. The Unionist leader, Edward Carson, urged his supporters to rally to the British war effort in their new Ulster division. On the back of this, and with the fact that the Home Rule Bill was due to be passed on the 17th of September, John Redmond, the leader of the Nationalists, found himself pressured to demonstrate his support. He called upon his Nationalists to enlist in the Irish regiments of the British Army, so that they could keep some kind of autonomy or separation from the British cause. He also gave a rousing speech, in which he said, The interests of Ireland, of the whole of Ireland, are at stake in this war. This war is undertaken in the defence of the highest principles of religion and morality and right, 
and it would be a disgrace forever to our country and a reproach to her manhood and a denial of the lessons of her history if young Ireland confined their efforts to remaining at home to defend the shores of Ireland from an unlikely invasion, and to shrinking from the duty of proving on the field of battle that gallantry and courage which has distinguished our race all through its history. I say to you, therefore, your duty is twofold. I am glad to see such magnificent material for soldiers around me, and I say to you, go on drilling and make yourself efficient for the work, and then account yourselves as men, not only for Ireland itself, but wherever the fighting line extends, in defence of right, of freedom, and religion in this war. Appealing to the Irishman's natural sense of honour patriotism and religious loyalty, Redmond rallied his followers to the cause. In all, over 200,000 Irishmen would serve in the British army throughout the war. The war gave a chance for the Irish tensions to diffuse, and for the focus to be shifted to something that could try and unify. While this didn't last too long, the war, rather ironically, presented Britain with an opportunity to steady itself. For the suffragettes, their aims were far from met. But for the Pankhursts and the leadership of the movement, the war now took precedent. In what has now been described as patriotic feminism, the WSPU committed itself to the war effort, flooding into their now vacant workspaces picking up where the men had left off, and fighting from within the factories. Christabel Pankhurst, expressing the intent behind their decision to halt their protests, said, It is the women who prevent the collapse of the nation while men are fighting the enemy. While this was a powerful show of patriotic loyalty, it also served the movement well, setting themselves up to demand the reward of female franchise after the war. The women of the suffragette movement would go on to drive recruitment, support conscription, and hold the industrial backbone of the nation together while Britain waged war. This great war, the war to end all wars, was about to engulf all of British society. From the lowest stratas of life to the heights of the aristocracy, from the youngest to the oldest, Every man, woman, and child would be affected and impacted by this First World War. To find out just how far this went, make sure you check out the next episode, Total War. But for now, this has been the Present History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms, and to subscribe to both the podcast and our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all future episodes and content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Present History Podcast.